2: I'm Stephen
3: and I'm Anoush
2: and on this week in a special episode
3: we discuss all of the candidates for the Labour leadership election
2: in punishing amounts of detail.
3: <laughs> <laughs> we're joined by Alvaray and Patrick Maguire to discuss first of all the Labour leadership contest which has kicked off in earnest. Ooh. So Patrick you were at the Hustings or at least I was lurking outside them.
0: craning my yeah. neck to the door and hearing nothing other than the chuntering of my lobby colleagues, yes. Um, <laughs> who won, I suppose, the question? Uh, maybe you weren't going to ask that question, but I'll answer it anyway. Lisa Nandi, who is among the second tier of candidates who might struggle to reach the 21 MP threshold for inclusion on the ballot. Of course, Keir Starmer, at the time of recording, is the only person to have cleared that. He cleared it on day one, which is a sign of just how thirsty the PLP is for someone with a prime ministerial haircut. Um <laughs> You know, uh, and the consensus of MPs coming out was saying, you know, Lisa Nandy knocked it out of the park, which is significant because, you know, she needs to wow MPs. You know, people saying, you know, Clive Lewis had some interesting ideas for a master's seminar on politics, but not necessarily leadership material. Whereas Emily Thornberry, the consensus was she didn't have a great night, which given that she only has one backer who isn't herself... Not great. So that's the live land in terms of the second tier candidates, obviously. Then you have listeners at home can uh, sing the chorus, but Keir's on Keir Starmer is clear the MP threshold and is halfway, having got the endorsement of unison today to reach the next stage, then Jess Phillips and Rebecca Lombelli are probably both likely to reach twenty one MPs. I don't know what you, you guys think. Jess is basically the only candidate
2: to the extent that I mean one one of the the many intriguing, to me at least, decisions about that particular campaign is it is a campaign of from of someone who if you look at the things they actually believe if you look at the year in which they were selected is not on the right of the party mm-hmm. yet they are the candidate who is both running as and has become like the preferred lever of choice for the sort of unrepentant or whatever yeah the kind of like you know look we we will the the members will listen to us tendency right i yeah they are essentially running to the platform of like i'm a winner which is a bold choice when you are not the most well-known candidate
0: it's interesting comparing that pitch to liz kendall's in 2015 which was very much it was a change or die pitch yeah but and i don't mean they aren't substantial in a pejorative sense i mean in the literal sense of the word substantial like okay jess Mm. has been you know been more willing to critique policy than the rest of them although Lisa Nandy is the only person to say she would junk a specific policy thus far whereas Kendall was very much like root and branch let's look at what we are and what we're for as a party Jess's pitch is basically just I will say it differently i don't know what you think yeah
1: no yeah i mean yes and so i've been working on this piece sort of collating all of their major op-eds and interviews which i thought wasn't going to take that long and has actually been quite a long process but reading them all and re-watching them in quick succession i think really drives that point home that's like that there's like a huge difference in how much substance there is in each of the pitches i mean i think that that jess phillip Pitch is really laid bare when you have to sort of reduce a video or an op ed to a sentence and you realize that it's really like. I mean, she said, you know, people like education and safety and, you know, they think it's radical at the moment, but it shouldn't be. but for me. And, and like, and the, the implied thing is just, you know, I have the force of personality to win this, unlike everyone else, because I have, you know, this personality that has got a lot of media attention. But that's it. And, I mean, maybe personality is quite important. That's I mean, that's sort of, I was second-guessing myself and I thought, well, maybe that is kind of enough. Maybe you just do need someone to say it differently. But, but it's not very substantial. And to the credit of a lot of the other candidates, there's a lot of substance there.
2: I think, the thing is, I, I think, right, I mean, one as you say, like, Liz did actually have a substantial set of, policy Mm. yeah and you know i was reading blair's forward to the unfinished revolution again uh, again yeah (laughs) for the first time I've, i've never picked it up before um but you know one of the many interesting uh, bits in his rules for opposition is you know because w- I, I was reading it because i was reading james medway's piece on what he thought had gone wrong and i thought oh, i've read this somewhere before i was fairly certain it was somewhere in the unfinished revolution and you know, interestingly which actually your policy positions do matter right actually mm-hmm. they are how you signal what your values are when you, the only things you can do as leader of the opposition particularly when there is a large majority is you can run your party differently or better in this case this is a slightly weird weird thing to say But the only person in the United Kingdom who is well served by Jeremy Corbyn's failure to tackle anti-Semitism in the Labour Party is whoever his successor as Labour leader is. Because it's like they've been given this like, here's a way you can show change um, without having to concede like literally on anything. But it's a symbol of them running the party differently. And the other way, of course, is announcing policies. And I just think you can run as the I'm a winner candidate. Obviously, Tony Blair did that and uh, Boris Johnson did that. But they both had done things before becoming leader to mm. indicate, to to support that. Tony Blair had been a hugely effective Shadow Home Secretary. Uh, you know, as Shadow Employment Secretary had, you know, changed a lot of Labour's policies uh, on, on the Labour market already. He was a, a national figure, right? He was someone who was known. He had written substantial pieces about the future of the left, including for for the New Statesman. So him going, it's time for a winner, and also we shouldn't forget. As well as going, it's time for a winner, he did also go. I'll renationalise the railways and social. What socialism mm-hmm. means to me is, <laughs> uh, and I find it hilarious the number of people in the Labour Party who say we need, who basically either say we need a Kinnock or a Blair, but don't seem to have noticed just how much tickling of the Labour stomach Blair and Kinnock did in that, 1983. That's in the striking thing
0: about um, the David Miliband victory speech that he never delivered, but somehow at a point of you know crisis Fred Miliband found its way into the pages of the Guardian in 2011 or 12 you know there's a long passage in there where he goes this is why I am a socialist right and if you think now that David Miliband of the collective imagination in Westminster is centrist dad par excellence like you know you do have to and you know maybe that's why you won among the membership like you know yeah, you, I mean, do, you don't you don't
2: yeah and I think like you know I, what I find fascinating right is just as a critical mass of baby boomers genuinely seem to believe they fought in World War Two. A critical mass of third-generation Blairites, and I use that term in its broader sense, because in my mind you're not a Blairite if you don't actually support actually existing Blairism. Seem to have be- believed they won. They've won general elections. Like this whole thing. Like it's time for a winner. It's like guys, you've literally won nothing. Some of you are. Some of you quite literally weren't in the party during the uh, the last time he won something. Yeah, it's kind of this sort of you know kind of almost this weird idea that like. Winning is inherited It's like no 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 He won those things And yeah won by using And yeah in in almost everywhere I would say yeah, Both from an ideological perspective A technical perspective in that he was you know He owed his position to his political proximity to Tony Blair You know David Miliband did fight A Blairite campaign To to win the leadership which is why he came You know had he been a bit nicer To two whole MPs He, <laughs> he would, have, would have pulled it off But I think you know when people go like oh you know They're two different electrodes. Ultimately, if your claim is I cannot for four months say things to woo socially liberal, politically energized people, I I can't (laughs) successfully do that for four months without chopping my hopes of winning the general election off at the knees. I just think this idea you think you can do five years without accidentally blowing yourself up, I mean, that obviously can't be true, right? Like, it's difficult to win a party uh, election, uh, but it is significantly less difficult than than any of the, the other things. But I just think it's a mistake to go to run as the... I'm change, candidate, if you're not a national figure. Most people do not have a clue who Jess Phillips is. You see this in the polls about who the most electable one is, where they pick Keir Starmer. And I'm not saying this in a negative or a positive way about Keir Starmer. It may be that that is correct and that when voters get to know all of them, they will still believe him to be the most electable one. But what they are actually reacting to is they've heard of him and he has a reassuring chin. (laughs) Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but yeah. It's, but that is why it's an act of lunacy if you are a not Keir Starmer candidate to have the subtext of yeah. your me- message it's time to win because you are asking a question to which you are you, you may well be the answer you're, you're pushing
0: you're, people towards Keir Starmer yeah, if you're no, making up the question yeah, of the campaign
2: because you're
3: anyone, saying winning is the most important yeah, quality of, and, of any, any future leader yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah. A, anyone who any member who is convinced by the argument that it's time for a winner if they look at what all of the actual evidence shows, yeah essentially right, the one thing the polls can tell you about the electability of the candidates, and I 'm going to include all of the candidates, including the ones who have you know dropped out already. The only two candidates who were, were ever considered might be running in this race whose electability you could you can draw any conclusions on are Keir Starmer and Yvette Coopers because they are both people who people have heard of. Mm-hmm. And I do, I mean, I find many things astonishing about, like, why people think that the person who shadowed Theresa May, who literally became Prime Minister at the end of that process, is the answer. But she's actually not that popular. And unlike any of the others, right, she is a known quantity to most voters. I think probably quite a lot of them believe things that Harriet Harman has done, she's
0: done. But, you know, that's neither here (laughs) nor there. I sort of of feel like the... the, um the frequency with which some we are told by people in Westminster uh or on Twitter that a leader is someone the Tories will really fear is in inverse proportion to how good they would actually be in the in the country. I don't know that, that I don't know that's just my prejudice against groupthink. Hmm. He says, you know, grubbing for likes on Twitter with groupthinky statements. But but you know what I mean? Like I just,
3: Yeah. And
0: Cooper is one of those memes.
3: Yeah, I think it is But I also think it's what you're saying about Keir Starmer having the re- reassuring chin. I mean, lots of I mean there was a Tory pollster who I was speaking to who was saying, "Oh, the person they'd most fear hands down is Keir Starmer." And when you actually ask about that, It's just, you know, it it really is kind of lawyer goggles, I think. And Jess Phillips actually said it herself, though she didn't mention him by name, at an event we had for the New Statesman before Christmas where she said people see a a white man in in a suit... Who's a lawyer or whatever profession um and think that's a leader, and they see a woman you know trying to do the same thing, and they think maybe one day and I do you know yeah. while I think there's a big problem with jess Phillips's pitch for the leadership in terms of what you were saying, Stephen, I do think that that's true, and I think that the labor Party have to be really careful with prioritizing this sort of mythical competence which I'm putting in air quotes for listeners because I know you can't see me and like sacrificing who actually might be the best opponent to Boris Johnson if they if they become leader because surely this isn't just about charisma or or leadership because the labor party had the same problems that Jeremy Corbyn had before Jeremy Corbyn so it's yeah. really easy and seductive for yeah. for these candidates to think the only problem, because it was said on the doorstep, was Jeremy Corbyn. And I'm not Jeremy Corbyn. I'm better than him. And so I can fix all these problems and be a winner. But actually, that's that's just too simplistic. And unfortunately, it's not that easy, if only it was. It
2: yeah. did feel a lot like um, in the um, aftermath of the 2015 general election, where it felt like a lot of the candidates were essentially running on a ticket of wasn't it great how from 2010 to 2015 we didn't have to make decisions? But we were kind of important because whenever <laughs> the government got stuck, you know, you know, like you know, we, we got to still go in and like talk about equal marriage and you know, like we were still influential. And and now, thanks to Ed Miliband, it's like well, thanks to Ed Miliband, you've gone from a hung parliament but a defeat to a repudiation that makes it look like you're probably not going to be back for some time and. Corbyn, of course, has had this weird thing where he managed to basically end up being the Ed Miliband to his own Gordon Brown. In then he inherited a wreck, got the wreck out of the ditch, then drove the wreck back into the ditch, set the wreck on fire. <laughs> <laughs> but it does mean that it feels like a lot of the candidates are running in a kind of like, well, that ditch was pretty good, wasn't it? I can get us <laughs> back to the ditch. And it's like, guys, the ditch was terrible. Mm-hmm. the the ditch was still you know you know the third successive defeat on the, the second yeah you know, was uh, so only two defeats but you know it was you know it was still you know defeat after defeat i i agree that you know one of the there is always a problem that if you look for competence you uh, advantage the candidates who who look like the person who has been a candidate already mm-hmm. however and i'm not saying i think it was the only thing that went wrong uh for joe swinson on the campaign trail i do think there has been a Particular failure on the part of people on the right of the Labour Party who broadly have similar politics to Joe Swinson to look at what happened to her and go hmm does that have implications, yeah like this is the thing it's like you, I completely do think that the competent stuff is freighted with all sorts of um, yeah you know, kind of ideas about the oh like well Keir looks like 23 mm. out of the 25 people to have done this job but if you think about like not just in this country but Everywhere where someone who's not the default man wins, they do so by reassuring the default man that they're, you know, they're different but not in a scary way. I mean, like, Sadiq Khan mm-hmm. quite literally has a dog that is notionally called Luna but is actually called Don't Worry Guys, I'm not one of the scary Muslims. <laughs> like that's like that's why that dog appears in interviews. <laughs> like yeah, like that that that, that is its that is its political role in those photos, right? You know, like Obama with his whole, like, I'm going to do a big speech in which I reassure white voters, you know, don't, don't worry, Kwanzaa won't be celebrated in the White House. Or like <laughs> Helen Clark in New Zealand, like doing this, or, or Angela Merkel, right? And then you had Joe Swinson, a candidate that, running as an explicitly feminist, mm. non-default male candidate. And you had people going, oh, you know, I just don't like her. Her hands are a bit weird. Uh, she seems, a, you know, she's just kind of a bit shrill. And, and again, I, I'm not saying I think the Lib Dem campaign was perfect. And I think it did have other deeper problems. But I don't fully understand what that bit of the Labour Party's account of what went wrong for Joe is that they don't think would not also go wrong for Jess Phillips. Is
0: it? I mean, mm. is it just that she has a slightly broader regional accent? That, that's a genuine, yeah. g- you know. in the, you know, when you hear a brummie accent, you don't code femininity. Like I say yeah. this with my dad's from the West Midlands, so yeah, that's my getal. You know, but like, you know, it you will hear sort of something yeah. different. She, she says
3: that herself. Actually, she says that sometimes people think she sounds like a bloke, and she thinks that it works in her favour. So yeah, I don't think yeah. that's unfair. No, I do
2: think. I do think. Yeah. Do think, mm. yeah then yeah. Joe had a particularly feminine accent, and also a lot of English voters don't like v- Scots. Yeah, don't like Scots. I mean, that is like one of the the, the many uh, things that does help the SNP is the fact that we now have a pretty engr- a growing pool of data. Than English voters are like, guys, you can stay, but you don't get to actually run anything. You know, <laughs> what do you think this is? Twenty ten. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, so let's let's actually go kind of have a talk about the other the other candidates because I think I mean. I, I, I do think. I mean, I think the fact that we've talked about it for so long, which is a central part of their strategy, shows that I think Jess is running a good campaign. I just don't buy that it has a path to fifty percent of the vote among the membership, and I am yeah. slightly dubious that it would work among the country. Let's talk about them in kind of let's. So let's do the second tier candidates first. Clive Lewis, who may not be long for this earth in a political sense.
1: He he has a, put a lot of thought into his pitch. And, you know, I think reading through all of his (laughs) op-eds, I've been impressed by, you know, the depth of thought and consideration. And I think that even if he doesn't make the ballot, a lot of his ideas will be implemented by the party or should be. And, like, have just been... So, you know, Lords reform, PR, moving power structures away from London, making the party more democratic. This idea that you could, like be more broadly progressive and, you know, have a better relationship with the Green Party or whatever and other progressive parties around Europe rather than sort of, you know, making it more about the left and Europe. I think those are all quite convincing ideas. Um, but unfortunately, he gave a not-great interview to Huck magazine in december so you know you would think of clive lewis as someone who would like have quite a lot of appeal among the sort of Corbynite grassroots but like a lot of those people are like big feminists who find he so he, he was talking about um sexual harassment allegations from 2017 which he was cleared of but he sort of made these comments which seemed like he didn't completely understand the politics around that and that has just landed so badly with what is you know possibly like not a huge group of people really like you know Corbynite feminists and other Corbynites who aren't so interested in the feminist side maybe won't be bothered but I think he has probably damaged a large part of his appeal there and you know he's up against Rebecca Long Bailey anyway and like competing for quite similar voters yeah a big a big yeah.
0: problem for for Clive Lewis in that almost the fact he's probably almost certainly not going to make the ballot almost proves his point which is the whole actually he's made this point explicitly which is Corbyn. The Corbyn Project didn't deliver on its radical promise. And actually, you know, basically the the, the, subject of his pitch is Corbyn was bad at the sort of politics Corbyn represented. And that goes for both the sort of democratising the party thing, but it also goes for the sort of low politics of fixing selections and, you know, more broadly, actually winning, putting your candidates in winnable seats. Because had Jeremy Corbyn managed to radically reshape the PLP, we'd have a campaign group of 50 MPs in this parliament and Clive Lewis would probably make the ballot. You know, or would have a much better chance of making the ballot. But instead, yeah. we've got a campaign group that's what about 25, 30 at the absolute absolute maximum. And there is no viable route for Clive Lewis to make the ballot. Yeah, and I think where that interview
2: does become really problematic for him in this stage of the race is not the only viable route to the ballot for him would have been one in which he emerged as the candidate of we've got to have a, you know, it's time to have a black leader. You know Diane endorses him. She also endorses and Dawn Butler. You know then, you know David Lammy endorses him. You can you can see how the path to that opens. But of course, for you to be able to play that card, you have to have credibility on a number of diversity issues. You can't just have credibility on your own. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think you're I think you're right. Patrick say it does kind of also slightly expose and his critique of actually existing Corbynism is correct is is correct. Mm. So actually, I was going to say let's skip ahead to Becky Longwell. But let's do so. Actually, one of the things I must say I do really like about all of the candidates in this race is if we had described one group of them as second tier in twenty fifteen. Oh, the incessant whining we have had. And no one, yeah, not peep from not anyone peep from of them. They, they do all broadly accept them. yeah, of course, there are two candidates who are definitely going to make the ballot and then there are some who, uh, let's say, have a more tricky... Yeah. Corbyn would have been happy to be on A tier at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, so Emily Thornberry is kind of like the political... She's a victim of the political of climate change, right? Like, uh, political success was, like, the, the viable route for the Corbynites to get someone who wouldn't, Purge them all uh, onto the ballot, and f- to being and the viable mm. route for Corbyn skeptics to get someone who you know wouldn't deselect them all uh, <laughs> from the ballot. But because for different reasons, it doesn't feel to either of those groups that they they need Emily Thornberry. She's down to her core vote, which I mean I wouldn't have expected to be Fabian Hamilton, but shadow foreign ministers looking out for each other. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I I think um, <laughs> I think, yeah, the, the fascinating thing is, I actually, I don't know what you think of having gone through all of her pitches, but I think um, her qualities as a political operator, mm-hmm. you can see that in the quality of the pitch, the quality of the, yeah you know, the kind of way that they all in different ways on election night did their kind of, like, this is a concession speech, but also kind of a launch speech if you <laughs> squint. You know, I thought and she, she, she delivered that very well. But yeah. ultimately, it doesn't matter how effective you are at being a T-Rex... When the meteor hits, it's hard to come back from that.
1: I mean, I'm—I was really looking forward to discussing this on the podcast because I'm still kind of baffled by how badly she's doing, and I don't—I just sort of can't really work out why individual MPs might not think of nominating her, even though you know I've—you I've, know—heard your arguments around you know her being the victim of sort of basically like changes within the the party structure because. You know, coming back to Anush's point about, like, what a leader looks like, I think that, you know, she is, like, very credibly what a, what people should think of when they think of a leader who could, you know, a, you know someone who could lead you to a an emphatic victory because she's sort of, you know, feisty and she's very good at pulling on emotional levers when she speaks, you know. She has an impressive backstory, she's very articulate and, you know, yeah I, th- I think that you know she really could be that person yeah. and it's amazing to me that no one thinks that apparently no, I agree like, like she, she you know yeah. she
3: swears she she sounds like she's straight talking she's also yeah. someone who's managed to tread the Corbyn sceptic Corbynite tightrope like Keir Starmer has managed to do in the Shadow Cabinet in fact she is kind of like a Keir Starmer but with Ed Miliband baggage and also the fact that she's a woman and maybe she just doesn't look as much like a leader as he does. Mm. Um, but I do think her her performances at the Dispatch Box when she's filled in for PMQs have been really good. So yeah. I do think that you have to put it down to the baggage that she has from the Miliband era and just not being as sort of impressive to, to a certain audience as Keir Starmer has been while filling that same space, you know, pushing for a second referendum, being... In the shadow cabinet and and loyal but not in the Corbynite circles.
1: Yeah, and maybe I mean I maybe it's maybe it's silly to overestimate the importance of like being able to do a politician y sound bite. Mm. But the thing I've been struck by with other second tier candidates is when they're asked on something like Iran And they have to sort of for a second, you know, audition to actually be the leader and just sort of say their take on it in a statesmanly way. You know, I think a lot of them struggle. Like Lisa Nandy was all right. Jess Phillips didn't do very well. And you can sort of see that they get slightly nervous doing it. I mean, maybe that's not very important. It's sort of very like someone who isn't very interested in politics take on what a politician does. But Emily Thornberry does that sort of stuff very well. You know, she's been doing it on Newsnight for years and the less experienced ones don't have that. You know, she has that leadership box ticked and just isn't appealing to anyone. And, yeah, and I agree that all her pitches do show that she, you know, has thought seriously about the problems within the party and, you know, has come up with her solutions and, yeah.
2: I think because she does have this problem that she's a second. I think the root of this is she's she's a first she was a first tier candidate for a long time, and then because of changing the PLP, the scale of the defeat, she's become a second tier candidate. But yeah, I think those mm-hmm. qualities. Yeah, from a kind of scientific interest perspective, I, I'm very disappointed she's not going to make the ballot because I'm intrigued to see because obviously I think the membership is in the same place as the PLP on, on her. Would the fact that she is the most effective politician of the group allow her over the course of the four months to turn turn the ship around,
1: mm. potentially. I mean, mm. I think it would
2: be a, a stress test of, of, you know, how much you can, you know, through having the sort of the right instincts in terms of how to position yourself politically affect the turnaround. The other sort of candidate in the second tier, of course, is Lisa Nandy, who in many ways is actually like your classic, like... Um, second-tier candidate in that she's basically got a body of ideas and the, the, if, if, it, if she gets onto the ballot it will basically be because the body of ideas has allowed her to leapfrog the lack of any meaningfully, meaning, meaningful institutional support.
3: I think that what you wrote, Stephen, um, about their, about no one commissioning who is Lisa Nandy profiles in a hurry is, is the exact problem for, for Lisa Nandy because she's someone that the public doesn't know. She's a backbench MP. You know, most people haven't heard of her. But lots of hacks know her really well, you know, because she's been around a while. She's she's good with journalists. She's a good political operator. And also Wigan is quite a popular place for journalists to go and visit because of the Road to Wigan Pier. um, George Orwell's book. Um, George Formby. Yeah. (laughs) Uncle Joe's mint balls. Yeah. So, you know, lots of people do know her in the sort of Westminster bubble. Most people don't know her outside, but no one's making that bridge. And like you say about her campaign, I don't think she's she's making, she's not building that bridge particularly effectively so far. But because she's got these strong ideas and she performed well at the Hustings, that's the thing that will carry her through. But is that what, you know, is that enough?
0: I think another problem for Lisa Nandi if she reaches the ballot, I mean, you can go one of two ways. The first way is that, I got a text this morning from an MP who who is, I wouldn't call him a Nandyite, but he's on the soft left And, you know, is a Nandy fan broadly. And he said, do people, by which he means like, you know, normal human beings, (laughs) um, think Lisa is on the left of the party? And it's a really interesting interesting question. Because if you just go purely on the basis of a piece written by a, a lobby journalist the other day in which Lisa Nandy was repeatedly referred to as a centrist, which is... It was, it, it's, yeah, it's not, which is bonkers. Not, not where I put her in my internal map which of is bonkers, the Labour but 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 um. Nonetheless, the fact the question is being asked and the answer is being got wrong in Westminster, I think speaks to a potential pitfall, which is if you speak to a sort of lay member of the Labour Party, you know, okay, they're not reading the the non-existent Lisa Nandy profiles, which speak in detail about her, you know, strain of, of definitely towards the left of the <laughs> Labour Party politics. Instead, they go Lisa Nandy, I know she's from Wigan and she's good on towns, but also, didn't she co chair Owen Smith's campaign, resign from the shadow cabinet in 2016? You know what I mean? That, that is the problem. You know, the, there is nothing, apart from town memes, which are absolutely banging, and <laughs> very good critiques of, you know, uh, Labour's you know, crumbling coalition, there is nothing filling the, the vacuum, as it were, to replace those gobbets of information. Yeah, I think um, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, I think it's, I, I, as as I as I wrote
2: in in my free morning email, I I think there's this weird death zone for candidates when they become old news for political insiders. For political journalists, Clive, right? Clive is another one, right? Yeah, right. But actually, yeah, like the average Labour member, and I think I think lots of people do have this idea that the average Labour member is as politically engaged and well informed as the average New Statesman podcast listener. I'm not saying that purely to butter up our, our listeners, but I do think that's one of the major sort of analytical problems a lot of the lobby has when they analyse like who the yeah, you know, uh, yeah. You know, uh, I'm going to steal Patrick's anecdote, despite the fact he's right in front of me. During the <laughs> 2015 one of the 2015 hustings, when they after they'd nominated the leader, they they moved on to the deputy leader, and um, someone turned one member turned to another and said, "Who is Stella Creasy?" And like when when you enter this zone, when everyone Yay. in the lobby believes you to be not worth a who is so and so profile, I just think it's yeah, it's going to be difficult for her to get CLP nominations. From the standing start of people not really knowing who she is, and then there is this thing right where, like, basically, so her her kind of her two central big ideas are radical devolution within. I wasn't say radical devolution within, and I realise well, actually it's actually radical devolution within England because she can't press a button, Mark, to devolution within Wales. That's not her call. Mm. And then listening to you know to the voters, Labour has lost. And again, to come back to the unfinished revolution, policy a, a, as the great Toblerone says, policy positions matter. Right, the way you show that you've listened to voters is you offer, you you, you know, you, you respond. And seeing as the things that broadly those voters don't like are status things, like you know, the smacking ban already law by the. SNP government in Scotland being enacted by the Welsh Labour government in in Wales. I mean, not quite as we speak, but you know, as we speak. And of course, the other thing they want they they do kvetch about whenever on a, yeah whenever you're kind of doing this, is immigration and all women shortlists. Now, those are all things which are very dear to the not only the parts of Labour's coalition in the country that they got last time, but are quite important to the membership. For me, the question is 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 that town's agenda? A co- coherent policy program that can win voters back and get consent from Labour members, because I think the the area of the landing zone for both of those is quite
0: small, right? And that's the problem that's the problem MPs have, right? They say Nandiism, I think you'll be hard pressed to find. Okay, there is a section of MPs who disagree with it. People say Nandyism is a is a brilliant structural critique of where the Labour what's happened to the Labour Party, but how do you translate it into a program for opposition? And, you know, actually, you know, you know what it would mean in government, but how does that translate to opposition and winning an election? Yeah.
2: The fascinating thing I think about Nandyism, uh, and I want to know, uh, I mean, yeah, Alva obviously will have a particular view on this, having had to go through her back catalogue, is it feels to me that Nandyism is the explicit message that Mm -hmm. Becky Long-Bailey kind of visibly believes is what they need to add to Corbyn, right? Like, Yeah. yeah, the kind of when you take... Progressive patriotism. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm trying to delete it. Uh, you know, the uh, you know, if you when you ta- add that to yes, I would pull the, the trigger on the nuclear button. You you basically visibly have someone who thinks the problem with Corbyn isn't the stuff about bank holidays on saints' days was not sufficiently believed because of Corbyn's baggage and back catalogue and views on foreign and security policy, right? That's kind of that's the the quiet part than than Becky Long Bailey doesn't think she can say out loud and keep her coalition together. I mean, am I am I crazy here?
1: Yeah, or I mean it feels like Lisa Nandy's pitch is the like the comprehensive, fully considered response to the problem we keep talking about of like labor, of Remainers being so disconnected from leave voters and the Electoral coalition within Labour completely collapsing. And Nandiism is a really coherent response to it, where it's basically like, you know, this used to be a coalition, you know, between, you know, it was a coalition with a base of working people and then middle class people hopped on and supported it. And it's switched, and now it's like it's mainly a, a base of more affluent city dwelling middle class people, and we've lost the working classes or people in Labour heartlands, and we need to get them back. And it's as though her solution is basically to then start listening to working class voters and people in heartlands again. And I think she makes it quite cogently. And then the the case that Rebecca Long Bailey makes is less clear on that. I mean, I thought like the reading through all of her stuff I think actually the most memorable thing was just stuff that she said on Sophie Rage when she said you know people in Waltham Stowe you know rich middle class people like Labour voters you know they they genuinely want equality and they want to be winning in Wigan and I I thought that like that was kind of an interesting approach where she's basically sort of pitching to leafy Remainers Mm. to back her and be convinced by her argument that she gets the problem whereas Rebecca Long Bailey's because she's you know trying to She's kind of constrained by her loyalty, basically. It's just much less clear.
0: You know, Paul Mason, intermittently of this parish, who's written a, a very interesting piece today in which he talks about Keir uh, Starmer and Clive Lewis being the answer for people on the left, has a line which means, um, which, in which he says something like, you know, if winning back... And this is actually the, the, the big question for the Labour Party in the next five years and, and longer, and some MPs are grappling with it in private. It's, if... Winning back our heartlands, TM, means chasing people down a rabbit hole of prejudices. I don't want to go there. And instead, you know, Labour has to assemble a new coalition. And I think the danger of Lisa Nandy's town pitch or or the way, you know, people read it, I think there's a danger of, you know, it's possible to, to mistake politicians that blue Labour people like for actual people who endorse the sort of, coarser end of those blue Labour ideas, you know, it's not it's yeah. I don't think it's necessarily fair to say you know, obviously in your uh, free morning email this morning, Stephen, you wrote about, at least Andy's line, about how dare we tell working class people what's good for them and obviously, you know, there's one reading of that which is the social issues one and the, you know, yes we are going to ban menthol fags and it's it's going to be a good thing. There's You can read it like that and you can also say, you know, is it a faith and flag you know, how dare you say to working class people you're not allowed to be prejudiced, whereas I would have read that more like, you know, is it sort of like a structural critique of power or whatever or yeah. is it a critique, is it a cultural critique? And I think mo- the, problem, the danger for Nandi is that people, especially in the Labour Party, the membership in the electorate, read it as the, yeah, but, you know, it's fine for people to be, you know, on PC when actually I don't think that's the space Nandi is in at all. No. Or what do you think?
2: Well, I guess the thing is, I don't think that is the space that she is in. I guess this is where i am more sympathetic i want to qualify that but it's where i'm more sympathetic to the end of blue labour than than people don't like i don't agree with it but i think it is a meaningful political destination my concern is that i think a lot of yeah a lot of nandyism and a lot of people around it seem to mistake telling voters in cities that they don't get it with reaching out to people in mm-hmm. towns and they're not the same thing like Fundamentally, yes, mm-hmm. opposition parties tend to like over-index on policy because policy announcement is the one thing you you can do. But actually, because it's the one thing you can do, the way you show you've listened is through policy announcements which matter to the people you're listening to. Now, it may it may well be true that if you have yeah you know, in the towns that Labour either lost or did particularly badly yeah you know, kind of not only narrowly held if you yeah you know, then. If you, you know, give people in Hemsworth, you know, proper devolution, then, you know, they do suddenly go, oh, actually, maybe like the four freedoms are a price and are worth paying being in the single market. However, in order to hold to win power, you can't just go, look, actually, I've listened to you. And the thing you think you care about is actually, you know, like when someone says the problem here (laughs) is then I don't then, you know, the problem here is a Polish shop actually, it's not listening to that person to say your real concern is about wages and a lack of meaningful devolution. Like, Mm. that may actually be the root cause, but the person you're trying to convince doesn't believe that. And I just think that either you do the kind of actual proper blue labour thing of you go, no, I I am going to, like, move towards these people on cultural issues. I then think where blue labour falls down, as well as the fact that I don't think it's desirable is that they refuse to realize that meeting the voters on immigration does mean that you you have to be less ambitious on spending i'm i'm sorry right yeah like like yeah the the Yes, uh, we don't all experience GDP in the aggregate. However, we do ultimately experience the amount of money that goes into the care system in the aggregate. And if you want to meet the public's ambition for control over migration and you want to meet the, well, in the case of Labour, not meet because Labour and the public are aligned in their level of, uh, of, of lack of openness to, to you know, kind of all singing, all dancing trade deals. But if you want to continue to be where the public are on trade, if you want to meet the public on immigration well, then, sorry, I'm afraid then that means that you probably can't have the ambitious childcare policy you wanted to have. You probably can't have... You know, like, the thing is, ultimately, if we're going to have a situation in which we sign up to a Brexit end state then people in small towns like, I'm afraid London can't redistribute money to improve Wigan because they're not going to have very have much it. of it. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, like, yeah, like that, that, that's, a, that's a political choice, too. And I just think that ultimately Blue Labour, the, the kind of end of Blue Labour that most of the Labour membership doesn't like, yeah. has seen that nettle and has decided to, to, grasp, gra- it. to grasp it. My concern is, is that actually Nandyism, if, it, if to be successful among the members, it doesn't grasp, grasp that nettle and then it just ends up alienating
0: everyone by not doing it properly if it wins. It's interesting when people also talk about devolution as a policy end in itself. Obviously, the most recent tranche of devolution, i.e. in the city regions, with the exception of the Tees Valley in the west of England, has brought about Labour mayors because they are in city regions that vote reliably for the Labour Party. But actually, if you're talking about devolving power meaningfully to smaller unitary authorities and towns, if you look at the tranche of regional devolution before that, directly elected mayors, etc., what happened in Doncaster, in Hartlepool, and Mansfield the first time, people elected local populists because they were the people who were willing to go out and say, this is crap. Peter, Dav- uh, Peter Davis, uh, father Philip Davis in Doncaster, the, the only person with the English Democrats, banned the Pride march or, you know, that, he might not have done that exactly, but it, it was in that ballpark. Hangus the monkey in Hartlepool, a.k.a. Stuart Drummond, who actually turned out to be a very good mayor despite being a man in a monkey costume. Kate also in Mansfield, you know, you know, playing all their houses independence. And, you know, if you look at Scotland, right, it didn't kill nationalism stone dead, as George Robertson said. Uh, it's looking like Tamdiel's motorway to independence with no exits, right? So actually, there is a... The the price of, you know, Nandiism in practice or, you know, regional devolution might be that actually it catalyzes at a local level the detachment from the Labour Party. Yeah,
2: I mean, also, I think this thing is that people do seem to have forgotten that growing passion for devolution and indifference to it in the country was not absent from Labour's... Yeah, you know, like, if so, like, the, because basic, right, in, in some ways one of the interesting arguments in this legal is when did it start to go wrong for the Labour Party? And broadly, Nandyism is the one which goes sometime in the mid-noughties, right? But actually, like, that Labour government loved being like, hey, guys, what you really want is some devolution. And <laughs> a large large council of the country repeatedly said no. Now, you know, I, I don't know this for certain because there is sadly not very much polling about it. However, to be honest, I feel like the average council if you knocked on doors and went, do you think your council should be given more money, sorry, more power, they would go... they definitely say yes to money, but I think if you said, do you think they should be given more power, they'd go, no, they can't run the X now. Think,
0: yeah, people, and also people don't like politicians. This is the fundamental thing. Mm. That was the Dominic Cummings case against the Regional Assembly... Uh, in the northeast in 2004, which is, do you want to pay the uh, the salaries of 50 more Assembly members? The answer is no. Look at Liverpool, which, you know, despite being a Labour city, if you ask, a, a, you go into a pub in Liverpool city centre uh, and say, what do you think about local politics here? Chances are, some will say to you, we've got three mayors. Isn't that ridiculous? <laughs> like, you know, like people, do, the, 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 another layer of local government isn't necessarily something people will go, sign me up. It's likelier that, you know, it becomes another lightning rod for a amorphous anti-politics feeling i i would i would say and then there's but there is also the question of does devolution necessarily mean electoral devolution are, are you doing what john macdonald did about regional investment etc etc it's an interesting question
3: yeah what you want is invisible devolution mm. really don't you where people feel empowered but they don't really know why um basically because yeah. maybe
0: maybe that is literally that you can go down your high street, and you know most of the shops are open, and so, you can. Your Marks and Spencers is there, and but
2: again, and this is why I kind of keep coming back to: at some point, this agenda does have to engage with. Wow, Labour goes down to a defeat, and Stephen the Hawk comes right back out. <laughs> but yeah, it does have to engage with like the reality of how you pay for this stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah. like yeah, action to defend the high street does involve whether it's. What I would see as my preferred solution, which is whether it's like the necessary level of ambition in public transport, like the reason when you what what the places which have flourishing restaurants, cafes all have in common is that people don't have to worry about getting drunk over their meal because there's yeah whether it's Edinburgh's brilliant buses or London's astonishing public transport or Manchester's like what they all have in common is a
0: thing that you can like stumble into that gets you home. Or, or, they have people who don't care about getting drunk and stumbling home, i.e., students and yeah. young people.
2: Yeah, exactly. And if you if you don't have that, you do not have a high street in the age of of e commerce. Now, again, so you can fix that in a number of ways, but all of them involve quite a lot of money. And if, and again, if you've decided that you want to change our economic model in a way that you know does not have ambitious trade deals, does not have a high standard of access to the European market. Well, okay, how how do how do those numbers kind of cohere? Uh, but anyway, I think uh, that's all of the second tier candidates, so we'll discuss the first tier candidates in part two.
1: Ready to pop the question?
2: So, we discussed four, four, five. How yeah, many candidates? We covered Chess lips. We, dis- we, dis- <laughs> we discussed four of the. We discussed the second tier candidates, who all, for different reasons, have an uncertain path onto the ballot. Mostly guaranteed. Well, I think Emily and and, and Clive Lewis unlikely to get on the ballot via the MPs route. L- Lisa is close. Lisa and Andy is closer to it than she. Is further, fra- you know what I mean? She's sort of. Uh, I th- I think Lisa Nandy and, and-, and Jess Phillips will both get on fine by the the uh, MPs route, but of course you have to either get the support of members, which is where the for some the being in that zone of well known by people like us, not that well known by Labour members becomes difficult, and for some you need the support of trade unions, and I think yeah. You know, Keir has, you know, from a technical perspective, I think has fought the best campaign thus far. But he's also been given this huge boost today with the support of Unison for two reasons. One, of course, that makes it easier for him to get on the ballot. He's basically all but on now. But also, Unison backing him makes it much more difficult to see how anyone not called Becky Long-Bailey gets on via the trade union route, which does mean, I think, probably the two candidates we're about to talk about are going to be the ones on it. But yeah, so, Becky Long-Bailey...
3: I think Mm. Becky Long-Bailey has some really good qualities that were very useful for the Corbyn project while she was in... Well, she's still in the Shadow Cabinet, which were that she was a really reliable interview. I think when they put her on programmes when Labour was having, you know, yet another crisis and she had to defend the indefensible, she was pretty good at that. I think she's quite unflappable. And that kind of training in the sort of media circuit as well as boosting her profile has also given her the sort of steeliness for those kind of interviews that she's she's grappling with now as one of the front runners to be Labour leader that mm. said she's answered a few questions in interviews that I'm sure you've been looking into in more detail Alva, in, in some strange ways like giving Jeremy Corbyn 10 out of 10 I know Yay. that was supposed to be a sort of signal to the members that she she wants to win over to to, to win but it still seemed rather odd I think that would be jarring even to, to Corbyn fans wouldn't it <laughs>
2: What I think is interesting is you're exactly right about her being, you know, someone who, who would do the kind of what I always think of the like, you know, but the prime minister has eaten a baby while abusing <laughs> while, while <laughs> the ma- mother. It's like, yes, but actually if you look at how many babies uh, the last <laughs> government used to eat while insulting their mothers, uh, it's down year on year. Is the... Whenever I speak to Labour activists about people like James Cleverly. Or Rishi Sunak, right? Like, Rishi Sunak and James Cleverly have been willing to, to look pretty stupid defending baby eating. Um, and, and they've done it very well. But I feel I talk to conservative activists, and maybe this is like an availability bias in the type of conservative activists who read the New Statesman and therefore like go up to to me are perhaps like more, you know, they're, they're more open minded. Mm. Um, They'll go. I think it's really good. Then, but I do think in general, conservative activists are, are more likely to reward you for turning up and like eating a bucket of crap because the leader has accidentally left a bucket of crap lying everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas you know, Lucy Powell and Caroline. I remember once someone said to me uh, during the twenty fifteen lead deputy leadership election, they said, "Well, I like Caroline Flint, but whenever she's on television, Labour seem to be having a hard time." And I just was like. Well, that, I, I don't I don't I don't understand how you've precisely <laughs> and it's yeah, whether it's Caroline Flynn or Lucy Powell or uh, you yeah, know when people are like oh it's Becky Rongdale." it's just like okay explain to me how you would have got out of that into that you know yeah. because yeah because she was the line the walls have melted and it's all falling down I think that is linked to her two biggest problems the first is that I think among some members who voted for Corbyn she is just associated with failure because of the whenever I see you on television, things are going badly wrong uh, kind of thing.
0: Yeah, it's like the the, the Wrong Daily thing, the Rebecca Wrong Daily name by which she's known, is less, as Anoush was saying, a reflection on her competence because, you know, she went out to bat and did so manfully and unflappably the whole time. It's just because she was, you know, entrusted and dutifully did trot out at times nonsensical lines to take or lines which the Labour, the bulk of the PLP... Absolutely hate it. If you are um, outrider is the wrong term because you can't outride from within the project. But you know, if you are a reliable spokesman for a project that lots of people in the parliamentary Labour Party don't like, then of course that that's going to and indeed the the whole political media complex, you know, don't like. Of course, that's going to have it's going to be your reputation is, you know, she's not very good because she represents something and is a servant of a project we mm. don't think is you know legitimate or. I Um. think
1: there's also maybe a problem with her where people think more of the idea of Rebecca Long-Bailey than the reality of her, where I was kind of struck by this, you know, when she was on the Today programme, I think that Martha Carney was sort of reckoning with how amiable she was, and um, I think that there's maybe an idea... Possibly, you know, from people who aren't going to be voting in this election anyway. But there's this sort of idea of Rebecca Long-Bailey as some sort of puppet, someone who isn't her own woman, Mm. someone who's sort of like being masterminded and controlled by all these other shady characters from the Corbyn Project. And it's reinforced by this idea that we don't really know who she is, that she joined the Labour Party quite late and that, you know, she's a John McDonnell protégé. But then you get the reality of Rebecca Long-Bailey, which is far more convincing. Like, she's much more personable. You know, she likes eating Chinese and watching Netflix. She has a lot of warmth. She gave a really good speech at Labour conference. And I think, like, the more, I mean, even though she has done some poor interviews, like the ITV one, I think the more people r- interact with the reality of Rebecca Long-Bailey, the, the better she does. But there's this sort of the problem, the idea of Rebecca Long-Bailey is quite similar to the idea of Corbyn as this sort of like far left threat and it's all kind of shady and i think that's kind of part of the problem and and it like it denies her a personality and an individuality mm. which is like absolutely not what a leader should have. Exactly, and you saw that in
3: the Not Leadership campaign video that she brought out during yeah. the election of her youth in Manchester. That was a sort of turning point where people suddenly realised, like, oh, she actually has her own story. She's not just this person who's been groomed by John MacDonald to, mm. yeah. to take the reins. But
2: equally, she is also someone who has sat on the NEC as an extension of Jeremy Corbyn's will for yeah. the best part of three years. And that's why I think, so obviously, the first problem is is that yeah, I think the first problem a candidacy struggles is if you're someone who thinks that you need to, in some way, signal to the country that you've got it. Uh, yeah, if you're a Labour member mm-hmm. who prioritises that symbolic thing, will be well, it's she is 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 not that. But also, like, and I I, I know I said in the first part, look, I think actually, if you look at what she kind of said about the progressive patriotism stuff, if you look at the kind of, of course, I would press the button, right? That is someone who clearly does think that the way you win is you keep the economics and junk the culture and foreign policy stuff right however it's one I think it's hard to do that if you if 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 you literally feel you cannot get away with using the words progressive patriotism a second time I think your failure state is you say those things just enough times mm. than like a little bit of the like you know than you know Two hundred people in Putney, or how many it would be, to flip that seat back to the Conservatives. Go, oh yeah, maybe this isn't for me. But you don't actually win any more votes back in Wakefield, or yeah, and, you, and of course, if two hundred people go missing to the Lib Dems in Putney, that has implications for your ability to hold Hemsworth or Pontefract, even if you don't lose any more votes on the other end of your coalition. But also, she can't get into that space because she has consciously chosen not to, mm. um, like. A surprisingly large number of journalists keep going, I don't understand why Angela Rayner isn't running for leader and she's running James. She's like Well, that's because Becky has prioritised being the candidate of the party's power brokers over being the candidate who can get seventy, seventy-five percent, whatever biblical landslide that Angela Rayner is inevitably heading mm-hmm. towards in the deputy leadership race. Mm. Um she has prioritized being the candidate over being able to to maximise her chances of winning and also clearly is still prioritising you know the kind of the support of power brokers over saying the things that she does yeah. I also think right like ultimately she needs there to be a left right dividing line in this election it's tactically inept to pick the Green New Deal and I think it's not only tactically apt, it re- it reveals a kind of delusion about actually existing Corbynism. Now, the Green New Deal, as it existed as an original motion, was a radical idea and upset bits of the Labour movement. But the trade unions have done an awfully good job of sanding all of those edges off, right? So if your USP is, I wrote this policy, right? Well, that means you're sticking with that policy. There's nothing in the Green New... U- as, as the fact that Jess mm. Phillips, Keir Starmer, Lisa Nandy... Obviously, Clive Lewis, but yeah, like all the Emily's, all of the candidates have gone. Of course, I'm for that. If you don't have the, and this, I come back to my point. I mean, part one, right? If you don't have the wit to wit to to maximise your chances over four over four months, you don't have the wit to do it over five years. Mm. I, I, I thought it was a striking misread of where the other candidates would go to make Green New Deal your USP, not welfare spending.
3: Mm, yeah. And also she was quite, she was prevaricating on what her immigration policy would be as well in that Today programme interview that you mentioned, which is, Mm. you know, like you say, if that's something that she doesn't feel like she can say as someone who's supposed to be the sort of continuity candidate, although she's trying to shed that that reputation now, then how is she going to say it while she's running an opposition Mm. party for probably 10 years? And I also sort of
1: wonder, I mean, how far could she stray from the perfect, loyal Corbynite brief while still being the continuity candidate. Like, I mean, maybe, I don't mm. know if you agree, but I mean, it's maybe just a huge failure of strategy. If you're already seen as someone who's very close to Corbyn and McDonald to not decide that you have, you can be a little bit freer, like, it won't matter. Like, Corbyn probably won't be that hurt if you say you give him a seven out of 10 <laughs> for his <leadership. laughs> You know, that maybe, she could afford to be a bit more flexible on those things while still knowing that to the membership Mm. and to the people that matter, she will still be the closest thing to Corbyn that Mm. they're getting in the election.
3: I think the big question is how much the membership care about having a pure Corbynite candidate. I feel like that's something that we can't know, but a lot of commentators take for granted. Mm. A
0: pro-Corbyn membership... Which this um membership provably is, right? Every opportunity mm. they've voted for Jeremy Corbyn or in the case of um to plug an example out like in a thin air, um the NEC elections, Jeremy Corbyn's candidates, which the John Lansman uh slate very literally was, it was the JC nine. It wasn't the the left slate, although the left slate may well have won by association anyway, it was pitched as we are we exist to enact Jeremy Corbyn's will. Is that the same as a Corbynite membership? Is everybody who voted in 2015 and 2016 for Jeremy Corbyn a Corbynite? Well, given that Corbyn won a majority of members, or certainly a plurality of members who had been in the Labour Party pre-2010, wasn't it, in in 2015, like, no, obviously, like, these people aren't, aren't all Corbynites by logical conviction. Corbyn just, you know, Said something and represented something that they wanted. It doesn't necessarily mean that they will naturally pick, um, you know, the anointed one.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I think also in terms of the stuff
2: we've said repeatedly about the fact that you know people just huge. Well, I think. I think there's this thing and I think a bunch of people in journalism, having failed to cover the Labour Party and why it was electing Corbyn very well, their sort of big theory for what happened was, oh, well, Labour members are stupid, they do stupid things. This is actually a narrative that some Labour members themselves have come to share, you know, like all of that kind of like, you know, like, you know, like, oh, they're a cult. And that's Mm -hmm. why I'm backing someone who's never been on a front, never spoken from the dispatch box to take Mm -hmm. on the might of Boris Johnson and win. (laughs) But actually, if you... Remember that you know all of the various doubts and, and criticisms we've had uh, of him, you know, in 2015 and, and throughout the project, you know, culminating, of course, in our decision not to endorse. Were not things that were known or of high salience to the average person who voted for him. When he did fight, far and away, the mm-hmm. best campaign.
3: Yeah,
2: um, you know, he just had better energy, better videos, better slogans. Had a plan to get 50% of the vote plus one, which was not something you could say for some of the people who ran in 2015. And that, to me, is actually the main reason why I do think, thus far, it is Keir Starmer who looks the most likely to win because he is fighting an incredibly ruthless campaign. Yeah. Well, mm. I guess that is the question. Is, mm. it, is he fighting a ruthless campaign or is is, is is Keir Starmer a bloke from the middle of the Labour Party
0: fighting a campaign mm-hmm. that speaks to people from the middle of the Labour Party? And as, as you've said, actually, if Long Bailey does win with the imprimatur of Unite and momentum, that won't be because Labour Party members necessarily look well, if Lemma McCluskey and John Landsman say she's alright, I suppose I'll have to vote for her as well because she's the most left-wing candidate as you've said, more likely that's because they will see a load of Momentum viral videos about Rebecca Long-Bailey, they will be rung by a Unite phone bank or if they're a Unite affiliate, they will get a, you know, a jazzy leaflet about Rebecca Long-Bailey in the post it will be sort of, it will be incidental rather than ideological if you, if you know yeah. what I mean
3: mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah
1: I think that's quite a good point about thinking about the reasons that people voted for Corbyn in 2015 and thinking about that I actually was thinking that Lisa Nandy, that's why Lisa Nandy doing so well because I think in, in part it was that preparedness, well I think you can disagree with this, I think it was partly a preparedness in the Labour membership and the people who joined Labour out of sort of political conviction to vote against your own interests in favour of the common good and I think Lisa Nandy is really trying to tap into that by basically appealing to people who in lots of cases aren't from towns who are like much more middle class than the people that they're talking about and she's sort of telling them to get on side with her idea to fight for the pe- for those people's interests. I think that there's something like kind of emotional about that pitch which is really working and it's so anecdotal but i'm surprised that people i know who like work for trade unions or are like union people um are very impressed by lisa nandy and having said the whole time that they would love you know rebecca long bailey or angela rayner to stand are starting to say that they like lisa nandy
3: Mm -hmm.
0: for me lisa nandy is in the crudder zone right which is where you know I think lots of people would have said, in well, indeed, when he ran for deputy in 2007 and in 2010, you know, there was a John Crudders shaped hole in both contests. But is it the role of a Lisa Nandy style candidate necessarily to win? You know, obviously she's in this race to win it, but like, is the function of candidates like John Crudders and Lisa Nandy to oxygenate debates rather than, I suppose, Brian Gould was serious about winning in ninety uh, two, but like actually like, was his function just to, Waver, flag, if you know what I mean, and, you know, talk about ideas, given that, you know, that's probably a shallow reading of 92, but you know what I mean, like, mm-hmm. if you're not going to win. I mean, so the
2: thing I, the thing I do kind of struggle with, right, in terms of grading, I realise we've drifted back to, to the second tier, is it feels pretty easy to assess uh, Becky Long Bailey and, and Keir Starmer, right, because they are obviously and palpably candidates for the top job. And it feels quite easy to assess Emily Thornberry because she was a campaign for the top job who has been hit by climate change. Whereas you then have a bunch of people who are just like, are are you really just running for the shadow cabinet? Much easier mm-hmm. in deputy leader, which we'll, of course, discuss a, a later date. But, I mean, like, Rosanna Allen-Khan is basically running for the, hey, guys, Joe, wouldn't I be a great... Shadow Health Secretary? <laughs> oh, that's, that's quite literally her campaign, right? I mean, like she's got Good the word her. doctor in her logo. I have so much time for it. Like It's, <laughs> it's, like, it's just so wonderfully like this kind of like, hey, <laughs> Rosanna, she could be Shadow Health Secretary. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. Um, is it a campaign for, to be in... I, I guess I just think where I think it falls down is that in 2015, Corbyn was very willing hmm. to say what he thought. Mm. And in different ways, the three candidates who it feels to me have a plausible path to 51% of the vote. The interesting question for all of them is, do they actually believe what they're saying? And will that gap be exposed over the course of this leadership election? Because in different ways, I do think they've all got a timer attached to them. With Keir, right, in many ways, so there are so many MPs like Keir, people who've had an incredibly successful career outside of politics, who... They come into politics and the thing that we know what they're about on is their previous tenure. So I think we have a pretty good idea that Keir is, to put it mildly, quite tough on crime and also quite radical on corporate overreach, standing up to our full libel, et cetera, et cetera, Right. We've got a really clear idea who Keir is on that kind of stuff. On the other stuff, it's like, well, what are his other politics? Is this uh, campaign? yeah a reflection of his raw id is it a uh, an incredibly effective approach to win power within the Labour Party with Becky I think at least then yeah she has decided that she thinks that you can win with the economics if you can you just move a little bit on the culture diffuse the kind of Brexit related issues however she's clearly already kind of slightly gone oh didn't like that backlash about the progressive patriotism line I'm going to kind of slightly say it by other means will that unraveled during the leadership election yeah with with nandy is she yeah like, yeah with this kind of issue of you know is she the candidate of yeah like you actually win towns over by listening to what they've actually said is she the candidate of going it's all very difficult i spent half many weeks talking about brexit and then didn't vote for any end state because if she's that right i think that comes unraveled over the course of, yeah. of the four of the four months then, yeah, you just have Jess Phillips, who, to be honest, I just don't think can win. So I, I, I don't think she so much has a timer, as in her timer has already reached zero.
0: Yeah, I thought when that YouGov poll dropped and it said 11% Jess Phillips, I was like, wow, that's a higher floor than I expected. But increasingly, I, I sort of think that's a ceiling the more I see of Jess Phillips, the leadership candidate. I just think, I just basically think, right, there are,
2: there are four candidates who Labour members know. Keir, Emily, Jess, Becky. And therefore, I'm not saying none of those candidates' numbers can change, but I just think for different reasons, they can feel more happy or more worried about their numbers and then, like yeah people yeah it's like yeah, people don't know what Lisa Nandy's political position is. Yeah, you know, the average yeah, you know, the members of the lobby don't know her position, let alone the average Labour member.
3: Sorry to interrupt, but I wonder if perhaps there's a danger of overthinking it. And actually what we know about the Labour membership is that they do vote for men. And with Angela Rayner's place as a sort of shoe in for deputy leader, perhaps that allows people to think, well, we have a northern woman who's gonna be elected, so I'm happy to vote for this London MP, man whose politics I don't actually know that much about, but he seems quite you know, impressive. Uh, you know, is it sort of obvious that that's what's going to happen? And
2: yeah, I mean, I think it is. That's it's a really good point, right? Does yeah. does the fact that Ange is considered, I think rightly, to be a shoe in for that mm-hmm. job, does it mean that essentially people make their? I mean, I you know, I mean, I understand why it is that the kind of like the Corbinite elite is nominating long bailey and bergen but i think that is and it's obviously not within long bailey's control she will nominate reyna and has said she will vote for her my yeah i think there's one question one as you say do people go like well we've already got one (laughs) two women (laughs) yeah yeah like
1: or i actually do think it probably was a thought process of some people like watching the keir starmer launch video which was really good um, and quite convincing. People are thinking, oh yeah, I probably will vote for him then. Oh, and then it'll probably be Angela Rayner. That'll be a nice team. And then, yeah. it, and then at least, and then yeah, as you say, it sort of allays the fears around electing the the white man who's barrister because it seems well balanced with Angela Rayner. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah. So, so weirdly, she, she Angela offering... Rayner could be Becky Long Bailey's worst enemy. In yeah. This. But
2: also the 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 fact that you have Diane and John McDonnell and implicitly, although Corbyn has interestingly said he will not formally nominate or endorse anyone in this race, but the fact that you have kind of the big names nominating RLB and Bergen, in terms of that swing vote middle bit of the Labour Party, does that actually drag you if you're Becky Long-Bailey into a place you don't want to be, in terms of your ability to get 50% of the membership plus one? I think there's an argument
0: to be made that it might. Yeah, it's clear that If people keep saying Long Bailey-Rayner is a joint ticket, I will, you know, put my fist through my computer monitor because it isn't a joint ticket in any meaningful sense of the word. Like, Mm. the real joint ticket, if you look at the nominations overlap, is, and Rebecca Long Bailey won't, you know, this won't help her, as you say, is Long Bailey-Bergen. Yeah, And Bergen will be speaking as if it is. The nominations reflect the fact that they're, Base of support is the same, and Rainer is talking an entirely different language. If you compare her uh, launch speech in Stockport mm. um, and its warnings against, you know, fruity language on the economy with Long Baby's Tribune piece that dropped twelve hours later, then th- 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 that's not the same strategic yeah. gambit at all. And you know, when you say to Angela Rainer, you know, it's like in the same way that Prison Sentences are at her-, at her-, at her Majesty's pleasure. You know, like it's somewhat like it's almost like a. A tick, right, in say who do you support, I support Rebecca Long-Bailey, you know, it's a formal sort of cap doffing rather than an actual coordinated we are a team thing, you know what I mean?
2: Yeah, whereas I guess I think, and this obviously might be my massive cognitive bias and the fact that I, this is, has always been my analysis of Blair Brown, my assumption has always been that actually they don't disagree on anything, it's just Angela Rayner is much more willing to say those things and I kind of think if you look at the kind of things where Becky's kind of hinted at stuff and then kind of gone, oh, I didn't really mean it, she gets a lot closer to Raynerism, mm. But, as you but say... the constraints yeah. of her, as
0: you say, the constraints of where she is, where her coalition is, you know, the, her route to the ballot rather than Rainer's route to the ballot means that politics means she can't, right? <laughs>
2: You've been listening to the New Statesman Podcast with me, Stephen Bush, my colleagues Anusha Kelly and Patrick Maguire and Alva Ray. It's recorded by Emily Bootle and produced by Nick Hilton. Our music is still Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. We'll be back to our normal format next week, so if you have any questions for you, ask us, let us know. Plus, we'll have lots and lots more about the state of politics in Wales.